You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. So, Paul, apparently you've arrived. (laughs) I don't know if you knew this, but I think Richard in this episode officially christened you as a non-dual master. Yes, you know, you can take my course online for $99.95 to also become a non-dual master. Uh, Now, I was flattered, elated that Richard sees something in me. And um, I just tried to receive it and and hold it lightly because I was not expecting him to offer such kind words upon me. Well, isn't that just... I mean, that's just the example that I feel like he's he's offering us of deep, profound humility, where we can look at this concept of non-duality that we often get so heady and mm. achievement-oriented about or kind of equate with some sort of blissed-out state. And he, he translates it into incarnation, mm. into, it looks like you, Paul, you know, it looks like the ways in which you hold space for us. It looks like, you know, the person down the street. It looks like, you know, he brings a fleshy human approach to this tenet, which I'm going to read out right now is non-duality is the highest level of consciousness. Divine union, not private perfection, is the goal of all healthy religion. And we really lean into that perfection piece, which we've noted has come up quite a bit in our conversations and how that is not this old model of achieving perfection is actually a barrier to our leaning into the stance of of non-duality. Yeah. We also spent some time in this episode talking about how divine union isn't a static thing. It's not a one and done. It's not just a place you hang out, but rather divine union seems to be inviting us into action, into manifesting. Mm. It's, It's a part of that creativity on behalf of the whole that moves in and through us with momentum, with dynamism, which I found really helpful so that it wasn't just this idea of like, yes, take the elevator up to the seventh floor of (laughs) non-duality and there, from there, you will see everything and know everything. And I also love the way that those values that we've talked about, simplicity, devotion, and public virtue are such a part of this. Those are not lost. Those are a lot of how this looks like with flesh on it. And then, gosh, I was so grateful that Richard offered a little bit of guidance for those of us in our first half of life about mm. how one should approach non-duality. What does he call them? The four splits? The four splits. was so practical. We found them to be immensely practical. And it's something that I'm going to be taking with me as I continue to um, try to live into these tenets a little bit more as ways to see where am I cut off from the whole? <laughs> where am I not functioning from union or unification or the act of oneing? Mm. So we hope that you'll find this conversation helpful in unpacking the seventh theme on non-duality. So Richard, we have made it to the seventh theme. Yep. I feel like the seven-story mountain, like we just got to the, <laughs> the pinnacle here. It is funny that we concluded with seven themes. But After all. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the seventh theme out loud just to begin our conversation sure. today. All right. The seventh theme of the alternative orthodoxy is non-duality is the highest level of consciousness. Divine union, not private perfection, is the goal of all healthy religion. 
Paul and I kind of thought maybe you could kick us off, but we were thinking about instead of sharing a story as we have been with each of these themes that helps us put flesh on it, we wondered, is there somebody in your life that really embodies this tenet for you, that pointed the way, that helped you see that this tenet can be true and can be actualized and realized? Yeah, there's actually a lot of them over the years, and you'll be happy to hear this. Usually, they're nines. Mm. Our uh, people. I knew you were uh, special and <laughs> holy for a reason. Uh, not that the rest of us can't learn it, but to nines, it just comes naturally. It's like, yeah, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> it's your gift. It really is. I, I wonder if that's why in the Enneagram, the nine is put at the top as the archetypal, simple human being. They refuse complexity if it isn't necessary. Now, there's a good meaning to complexity, but there's a bad meaning, and the bad meaning is the splitting of an issue or a problem into two alternatives and thinking because you chose one, you're smart. So, yeah, most nines I've ever known, going back to the New Jerusalem days, uh, they were the peacemakers, they were the resistors, and yet they did it consistently in such a non-showy way, such a non-pretentious way. In fact, you'd, you'd find out they'd been doing something for months and the rest of us didn't even know about it. Hmm. It's really your gift. But do you want a single name? Well, one sitting across from us, Paul Swanson. (laughs) He is. That's your gift. Mm. Everything I just said is true of you. You resist drama, and you resist pushing yourself forward. Mm. And that non-egocentricity allows you to be a kind of non-dual person a little more quickly than the rest of us. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you're naturally enlightened. You have to go through your growth. And oh, suffering. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> growth and suffering like everybody else. Largely in terms of purifying your motives and choosing love again and again. But it always seems like you have a head start. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Well, this has suddenly become my favorite episode. <laughs> <laughs> You know, something that came to mind for me is someone who lives here in Albuquerque. His name's Chuck. He lives a very radical lifestyle. Very radical. He lives on less than like $500 a year. He invites anyone who needs a place to stay into his home. All of his food comes from what everyone else wastes. But I think it's been that radicality that has been the gateway for him to live out of this union. He also has a very deep prayer life. He begins the day in a couple hours of prayer just abiding in that presence and you i've never heard a judgmental word come out of him for those who live yeah yeah you know him well sure um and that spirit is so contagious to me of this is what happens when someone lives Mm. in deep abiding union thank you that's true i've passed him on his bicycle many times over the years and feel so guilty in my little honda (laughs) <laughs> the, fr- the Franciscan rides by, and the true Franciscan, uh, you know, rides his bike. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Bree? Anyone come to mind? Yeah, I think, 
you know, it's almost like I, I catch glimpses of this in, in little moments with different people. It's almost like little shards of colored glass, you know, that you mm. get this little glimpse at character traits that that really seem to come out of non-duality or that seem to be the the outcome of that inner stance. And one of the things that I think about with this tenant is uh, one of our faculty members, James Finley, mm. and just his humor, his sense of humor, the way he is just so fully free, almost like the the perfect embodiment of the holy fool, right? Like he'll he'll give these incredible talks and then he'll come down from the stage and be like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what I said. And they are, they're all listening and, you know, they think I'm a master. I don't know what I'm saying. You know, it's just like this, this lightness and, you know, not taking himself so seriously, but considering that the challenges that he has lived through in his life and the yeah, trauma that he has experienced, still is, yeah. to have that kind of lightness of spirit that is so, it's delightful mm-hmm. and it makes, and it delights in others and it allows others to then feel delight as well. There's just this effervescent quality to Jim that anytime I'm around him, I'm just like, yeah. There's something about that energy that feels like it's the product of deep divine union. Mm. Yep. Well said. So as, as we jump into this topic, I think one of the greatest foundational dissonances that we're still living within Christianity that we've been talking about on this season is the idea of consciousness or union as, you know, a state, as if it's a static floor in a building that we just need to climb up to or mm. take an elevator to. Mm-hmm. And I hear in the conversations we've been having this week, a shift into dynamism, to be thinking about these concepts in relationship and in creativity and in evolution. And it kind of takes on a different tone when we shift into that because it becomes more about an inner creative stance as opposed to this static floor that we're all trying to climb up to. How does Jesus's prophetic example lived creative dynamic example of his life influence how you think or talk about non-duality? Well, of course, he's my stamp of certification that this is legitimate, even though he never uses the word. But if you look at his teaching method, he's always leading people to non-reactionary, non-choosing sides, And the way he has to do that very often is to identify with the rejected side, Mm. but not in a sense of punishing the perpetrator. It's very clever, and it, it seems like we didn't have the eyes to see that, that it's clear that he does. So even now, preachers don't tend to point that out. They just settle for a miracle or, you know the healing of a leper like we had this morning, which you don't know what to do with until you know that the leper was not a Jew, leprosy was considered sinful, or a sign that you were sinful. You have to read the whole context of most of Jesus' stories. It's the relationality that is revealed in the story that reveals the the real message. And relationality is complex. It's, like you say, it's dynamic. It's, it's not one issue. It's about six issues coming together. 
I don't know how we're going to train people to rethink that way because I, I listen to political discourse. I listen to most of the theological discourse, at least within my church, and uh, since the Reformation between churches, and it's always binary, always oversimplify your right answer and oversimplify uh, the enemy why he is wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's just, oh, stop doing that. It's never going to get us anywhere. So Jesus didn't succeed thus far in teaching it very well because, sorry to have to keep saying this, we made his life into a set of transactions mm -hmm. that were supposedly wonderful. Well, they were wonderful, mm -hmm. but the, the, the medium was never the message. Mm -hmm. It was always the conclusion was the message. And we were supposed to go, wow. <laughs> but a lot of wows don't add up to non-dual consciousness on either side. Where you, Yep, we got it, it's settled. Uh, there's something about non-duality that leaves you deliberately, intentionally, partly unsettled. Mm. But settled enough to be unsettled a little bit, <laughs> if that helps. I think it's the change that changes everything, mm. if that doesn't seem like an overstatement. I think it's the pearl of great price. It's our epistemology, or should have been. You know the meaning of epistemology. A lot of people don't, but I had to have a whole year of it in college. And it's a science of knowing how do you know. And so we spent a whole year studying theories of knowledge. How do ideas get settled in your brain? I think it's almost unhelpful to teach people theology or political conclusions without forcing them or inviting them or teaching them, uh, what's your epistemology? How do you know what you know? Mm -hmm. Because you read it in the National Enquirer? <laughs> because you heard it on television? And that's where most of our country is, and much of the rest of the world. You just watch politics in most countries. Well, it seems like what you're saying is that fundamentally non-duality is a it's an ongoing epistemology it's an ongoing right. way right. of knowing an ongoing posture of being open to the flow of love which is uniting we don't ever arrive this isn't something right. that you can you yeah. can arrive in and be like ding i'm, <laughs> I'm on floor 7 i got to non-duality mm. but rather it's an inner stance that allows us to channel the flow of loving more deeply um, in, in relationality to the whole and to yeah. God. That helps me a lot, Richard. Yeah. To it does. Because people don't feel you're laying a new ideological trip on them mm -hmm. with this new clever word. You know, something that might help uh, in this conversation is, again, the master Ken Wilber's distinction between stages and states. So you made the point that and I think that's right. No one achieves it as a permanent state. Take what the 12-step people call the confusing moments. Halts, hunger, anger, 
Loneliness. Loneliness, tiredness, and stress. When you're in any of those five states, you will momentarily regress to a lower stage. But once you've touched upon what non-duality feels like or can achieve, you're forever fascinated by it. So um, that's real helpful. So none of us can walk around saying, I'm permanently there. And I'm always glad we have this story in the Gospels of, of Jesus sort of being an idiot with this poor Syrophoenician woman mm. and calling her seemingly a dog. Right. Yeah. He must have been hungry, angry, lonely, <laughs> tired, or stressed that day. day. <laughs> but the wonderful thing is he reverts then to a non-dual apology and praises her sure. within the same conversation. But he slips into it for a moment. It's an important text that it's in there, that even Jesus didn't achieve non-duality as an absolutely settled, permanent state. Mm -hmm. He must have lost it now and then. And there's no evidence, well, maybe when he was teaching the elders at 13, but there's not not a strong evidence that he, he had it from... His birth to 30, even. What was he doing all that time? You know, he's maybe he was chewing out people. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Have you ever heard that John Prine song, Jesus, the Missing Years? Where it's a, oh, no. it's a funny song just about his own imagining of what Jesus was up to, you know, falling in love, going to college, becoming a hippie. It's, yeah, it's transferred it's, to our period. Yeah. <laughs> um, but taking this thread and, and continuing to pull on it, thinking about how, you know, Jesus has often been put on the pedestal of, well, Jesus was the son of God, therefore yes. union was in yes, the bag. Yes, yes. how can little old me, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, even achieve, you know, to, to use the wrong word, but uh, participate in the union. How has Christianity set up kind of that false, the falsity that, that we also cannot live in union? through kind of moralistic trappings. Like it, you talk about in this tenet is like, it's not private perfection, but as a system, that's kind of been the setup for union for a lot of us as we've seen, how do we participate in the life of God from a deep sense of union? Well, I'm sure you know what my answer is going to, my quick answer, because we worship the messenger instead of the message. Uh, I'm not saying we should even worship the message, but the way I usually say it is we worship Jesus as an icon of specialness and absolute uniqueness instead of followed him. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear in all four Gospels, he said, follow me. He did not say, worship me. What I In John's Gospel, he says, what I have done, you also must do. Uh, that's a significant change of position, of strategy. If we can see Jesus as the model, as the mentor of what union looks like, mm-hmm. what union feels like, and what we also can do. I don't know that we're going to get very far until we do that. It's no small issue. All this worshiping of Jesus I know you've got to do it in the first half of life to find your focus. You need devotion. You need to fall to your knees. You need 
someone to say, you are my Lord and my teacher. But then we don't really let him be our teacher. We just keep worshiping the icon. And instead of letting the transposition of place take place. In the Universal Christ book, I, I talk about how good Catholics, who I'm most familiar with, they will come up to communion, not the largest majority of them, but enough. And after you've handed them the body of Christ and they receive it, they will turn toward the tabernacle where the reserved bread is kept and genuflect, mm -hmm. <laughs> which shows they didn't get the point. You're now the tabernacle, you know. So it's, it's uh, no, no, I am not worthy. Well, what's the point of this whole uh, communion thing? It was just given to you. The state of communion was given to you in your unworthiness. We're back to our earlier themes, how they're all building on one another. Now I can walk with a dignity that I don't have to apologize for or prove or earn. That's our our big message that incarnation is continuing in the body of Christ. And we do that by continuing in two symbolic elements. I admit they're symbolic. That's not saying they're not real. Mm -hmm. I, and giving those elements for people to eat, and then, then you stand there with your dignity restored. But we keep them at the lower level where they're still fawning and fretting about their worthiness. What a way to miss the message. Mm -hmm. Of course we're unworthy, but do you really think you're ever going to get to a place where you're not? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that's that was the setup trap for yeah, so many of us yeah. within Christianity to think that that we were going to just get to that place of perfection someday, and that we had to deny our humanity and all the things that made us human, mm -hmm. which gets to your question and deny the divine image within us as within being us. as yeah, like I mean, I remember it's foundational. I remember coming across this and thinking for the first time, could it be possible? that I am also incarnating Christ, mm, what? Right. As me, even with all, you know, all my daily momentary mistakes. Sure. But, you know, I think what I'm picking up on and what you're saying, Richard, is that this concept of union, you know, you just use the example of communion for the Eucharist, for yes. example. It's not something that just happens once and is done. No. So it, if we use no. this dynamic principle, the act of union is unioning, it's oneing, to oneing, your, to your use of oneing. It seems to be an act that is continually happening and picking up on some of our previous themes of the Trinity and the path of descent, that union results in an outpouring. It moves us into manifestation. What do you think is the relationship between non-dual union and creativity or outpouring in love? Well, I don't know that your creativity can be truly generous and free from ego unless it's founded in a, a deeper connection than I'm doing this. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm the dancer. I'm the artist. I'm the poet, which you are, but it's because you're standing in a 
a deeper stream. Whether you know it or not, you know, again, Jung's phrase, called or not called, God is, Mm. Mm. (laughs) which he had written over his doorway. Named God or not named God, God still is acting. God, uh, God's action really doesn't depend upon us. It, it, it might be increased on us believing there is a God. God is still acting because you are still his living icon. That came about through a rather massive, unfortunate understanding of the word believe. Because I do know or have faith. Most of our Bibles translated believe or have faith as a mental exercise. And if we had translated it trust, to trust that God is good, you are good, God is here, you are here, (laughs) that would have borne much more fruit. And it's certainly legitimated by the Greek word in the New Testament that that we usually translate belief, our our, uh, faith, have trust. It's much more dynamic, fruitful word, really is. So when I get to read the gospel in church, I just change it. (laughs) (laughs) The roar roar translation. Terrible, yeah. (laughs) Richard, not to butter your bread too much. But I'm thinking about some of the ways that you've spoken in this podcast where when we brought the universal Christ and you say, did I write that? And to me, it's such a, such a model of how you are that vessel. You are that, that glass that the light is shining through and that you sometimes don't even run. I'm one. One. Yes. Sorry. Not the only, but how you're even surprised by the way that God is also working through you. Yes. Constantly. And I say, why me? Mm. I do. Why me? And. I think he picked someone in this case of medium intelligence and medium morality, so I couldn't think I earned it. Mm. Or, oh boy, I'm I'm a little Superman, mm. and I believe that with all my heart. Read and a, a little bit smelly. And a little bit smelly. (laughs) (laughs) I put my deodorant on this morning. (laughs) Um, I'm really appreciating, I know we've been saying this a lot, but how these tenets are building on each other. And, you know, we we were speaking before about personhood as one through whom the whole resounds. Seeing reality as one reality that is a system of relationships, that is relational. So that we have that sense of connection to the whole and hopefully live from that. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about Paul's description of the mind of Christ and how is non-duality connected in your mind to his description and how might that be related to this wholeness that we keep talking about, the mind of the whole or the, the connection to the whole? I don't know that he gives a fully proper definition, does he, of the mind of Christ? He he uses the phrase. But the context in which I remember it, uh, you're already going in the right direction. It's only held by the whole, by the whole body, in its connectedness, in its love, in its union, is the mind of Christ. The isolated individual can reflect it, can participate in it, can draw upon it, 
But for me or you or anybody to think we have it by ourselves in a state of separateness, that's what's not true. And even in Catholic theology, we, we, of course, we gave a great deal of authority to the Bishop of Rome, who we saw as the successor of Peter. And who's the man who who says it wrong the most in the New Testament, it's Peter. Mm. <laughs> so right there we've given an exit clause that the one who supposedly speaks for, for the whole still is fallible. Mm. That's why no pope has invested himself in his supposed own infallibility. Before he proclaims a, a doctrine to be true, he has to read the whole body of Christ and say, am, am I reflecting that? But the trouble is, in these first 500 years since the Reformation, we thought the whole body of Christ was the Eastern Church and the Western Church and largely ignored the Protestants because we were too ab able to exclude you as heretics. We really wouldn't do that anymore, mm -hmm. I, I don't think. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for including us. Good to, good to be back. And Richard, so it seems like the implications for us would be to live as those for whom the whole resounds through. And so how do we, is it right to say, do we tune our minds to the whole as our ethical work in contemplation? As the mind of Christ. Yeah, as yeah. the mind of Christ. That's lovely. I like that. And that takes time. Well, I'm glad I entered on the point I entered on, you know. And I don't expect everybody to be a scholar or a historian, but to make some attempt to understand, did other people ever say this? That's the critical way you've got to be attentive to the whole. Did the Eastern Church ever teach this? Did any Protestant theologian ever teach this? Uh, that's the humility that's required to be attentive to the whole. And invariably, if you take the time to do that, you'll see that the great truth keeps recurring in century after century, group after group. Less so in one case, more so in another. It really takes humility to be attentive to the whole mm. because you have to let go of your central position as the whole enchilada and defer to one another out of obedience to Christ, as Paul says. You know, the title, and Pope Francis has made a great deal of this, uh, that the title we, for, from the early centuries, we gave to the Bishop of Rome, it's written on stone all over the city of Rome, is Pontifex Maximus, that's Latin. And it literally means the great bridge builder. Wow. Pontifex, to build a bridge, Maximus, the greatest bridge builder. Oh, if only he'd done that, you know. If only we all did and, that. And, 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 well, but he didn't model it for us, but... And But Pope Francis is making a great deal of it. Hmm. It's written everywhere. If you ever go to Rome, look hmm. on a stone. It'll say, Pontifex Maximus. Wow. This pope or that pope, Pontifex Maximus. That it never hit them. Hmm. That they'd taken that title to themselves. But the only bridge they were building were was the little clans 
within Catholicism. <laughs> they didn't know how, how to reach outside or how to reach to the Eastern Church very well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's reminding me a little bit of, you know, thinking about the symphony and how in that first, the very beginning, you know, the, the first chair violinist gets up and then everybody tunes, tunes oh, yes, to, yes, mm-hmm. you know. You always hear that, yeah. Yeah, that that to live this out would be an invitation to be to constantly be listening and tuning ourselves That's to the whole. That's a wonderful metaphor. Thank you. Yeah, I like it. I like it. So, Richard, thinking about someone who leans into this inner non-dual stance, what do you see as their role or responsibility back to their local community, whether it's a, a church or their own post in, in, in their local context? They're, of course, the obvious first answer is their first responsibility is to model it, to represent it. Their second responsibility is to know it will be roundly misunderstood. It will look like uh, a false moral equivalence. It'll look like refusing to uh, take a stance, like not being prophetic. It's really a shame that it looks to the person who, who immediately takes sides overly eagerly. They don't admire it, first of all. Uh, they will seek to shoot it down as weak thinking or pandering to the enemy or the heretic or whatever it might be. So I, I think if you don't teach the non-dual mystic, contemplative, use whatever, we're just Christian as it should be, mm. some ability to carry the cross of rejection. And I've got to believe that's why Jesus was rejected. Mm. I mean, because we say, why would anybody reject so anybody so loving and so sweet? Well, you just heard why. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like strength. It looks like weakness. It looks like standing for nothing. It looks like refusing to take a stance because you jo- don't join my stance on right or left. And that's why it's an equal opportunity critique of both the conservative position and the liberal position. Mm. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart.
That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. But it also seems to be prophetic too, right? This, we'll go ahead, that it's please. That it's not a stance that, as we've been saying, results in passivity where we don't have the, the moral courage to stand up and speak out for, yeah. for those who are being oppressed. And so, you know, your whole life in a way, Richard, has been so about this prophetic action piece you know, which Maybe. is why well, not why, my whole life. Okay. <laughs> Little pieces right. of it. Uh, Little okay. pieces of it. But even in the desire to bring action into the name of the center, Center mm-hmm. for Action and Contemplation, mm-hmm. where do you see the role of prophetic action being a part of this tenet or maybe needing to be a part of this tenet? Um, because even when I read Divine Union, not private perfection, sometimes in my mind I, f- I find myself wanting to be like divine union that's embodied in prophetic action, divine union that is manifesting prophetic action. You know, I find myself wanting to add the action piece almost as a reminder just to myself that this isn't a private internal stance, Mm. that it has a bearing on our actions in the world. Yeah, it has a public face. Yes, it goes that public. So what would you say is the role of, of prophetic action and where would you put that into this tenet, or is it in this tenet for you? You know, Thomas Merton says in one place, if your virtue, I'm giving my own words because of my faulty memory, but I think this is the gist of it. If your virtue is entirely private, individual, inner virtue, which is mostly what all of us have been taught. We weren't taught about public virtue. It was all, I'm individually humble, I'm individually charitable. And we ended up not being very well able to do that because we didn't move it to the public forum. But anyway, back to Merton's understanding. He says, that's altogether too private. Mm -hmm. If it never has a public face. And, And that's what secularism is dealing with. And millennials are dealing with that they're sort of afraid to show their cards. And I admit, uh, certainly old-time Catholics and evangelicals didn't just show their cards, they sort of pummeled you Mm -hmm. with their answers. We can't go back to that. But is there any place, and I think there has to be, for public virtue? Let me give an example that might not please everybody, but I always have thought that if uh, Hillary Clinton had spoken more openly and calmly of her Methodist faith, showed a more nuanced bridge-building opinion between supposed pro-choice and supposed pro-life, I bet she would have been elected. I really do, you know. But she ended up allowing herself to be seen as a secular liberal. You understand? Mm -hmm. She didn't know how to bring, 
and, and that's that's pretty much Protestant theology. It didn't it didn't develop the secular city and how to live with faith in the secular city. Not that we Catholics did it much better, but we at least had it on paper that we should do that. Mm-hmm. So I have to use an example like that that we all can relate to, so it doesn't become theoretical. Yeah, I really think. It was her election to lose. And now look what we have. It's heartbreaking, really. That's It's helpful to bring in the public virtue into this tenant for myself. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, in a way it's as if you're saying the public virtue of divine union, not private perfection, is the goal of healthy religion. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that, that the, pub, the public virtue component is of a lived response and action of coming out of divine union. That's helpful for me to move it into an external flow so that it doesn't just stay in that private inner perfection that you're distinguishing from. Right now it's, well, it's always been, I think it's crucial. Mm -hmm. If we don't bridge that gap, everybody trying to be privately saved and so forth, but it has seemingly no effect on their public attitudes. In fact, they're a little embarrassed to quote anything that is spiritual, Christian, faith-filled. We've got to speak to the public forum, or we're going to end up being um, totally rejected, I Mm. think, because we have nothing unique to offer, really. Or helpful, practical. Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Yeah, and I'm thinking about with this private perfection, how... Some folks, after seeing this, will translate it as like, my new pursuit is non-dual enlightenment. And again, kind of on that private lane still. I know you've said before and written before of like, you can't catch the wild ass by chasing it, but you also can't not not chase, not it. chase it. So how Sorry. does one approach this without the sense of non-dual being an end goal, but more of the n- dynamic process that one leans into or shows up with. Well, let's go back to what we introduced a a few minutes ago about this being our epistemology. It's not yet our metaphysics. If we studied epistemology the first year, the next three years we just studied metaphysics. Mm. Metaphysics is the nature of what is. How do you know what is, then what is? Now, that's a task of a whole lifetime. What's reality? What's truth? What, what's good? And so forth. Unless we start engaging at that level, I think we just keep refining our epistemology over and over again. Mm-hmm. And, and if I had any possible critique of some Buddhism, that would be it. Is it, is it anything more than refining your epistemology. Now, because they've done that, they end up doing it very well, Mm -hmm. I might add, much better than we do. So we need to learn to do it. How do you know what you know? Through what lens are you seeing? We Christians have to, you know, get started more seriously on that path. But the goal is finally to exemplify a unified life the, the most radical statement of union is with the divine. I and the Father are one. You can't get more radical than that. Then I and the neighbor are one. Whatever you do to the neighbor, you do to me. 
But then Jesus pushes it to the limit, not just the neighbor, but the least Mm, mm. neighbor, the least of the brothers and sisters. Then the whole message of the divine indwelling is calling you to trust union with yourself. And I I don't know which comes first. Mm. I think it differs from person to person. But I know some degree of union has to be experienced here in me before I have the courage to imagine anywhere else and before I can honor the, the big spirit in trees and grasshoppers, I, I, union sees union. Union honors union. So I don't know what bridge you're going to take. You're going to start with God, make the big leap. It's usually pretty superficial. If you haven't first celebrate a union with at least one other person or one grasshopper or one least of the brothers and sisters. So the more common path that I would trust is people who do human love well are ready for divine love. But there are, I have met people who early in life, like little kids who their first communion is just a magical day for them. And they believe it, and they never have doubted it. They floated around for (laughs) a few days afterwards. They almost start with God, and then they try to love the other unions little by little. Did I speak to what you said? You did. did. Beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. So if non-duality, then, if we shift our mindset to not think of it as something that we're trying to get to, but rather to see it as how love is changing the lens that we have for reality and ourselves, that as we continue in this transformative work of love, we are being unified to that one reality. We are healing that ourselves from the fallacy of the separate self. We are moving into the flow of the Trinity so that in essence, all of these tenets then become true <laughs> mm. because it is about this flow and trust and path of descent and that this entire journey is one of shifting how we perceive so that we can join in the flow of love better and more yes, and more yes. deeply. Yeah. Uh, really to be seemingly simplistic, I don't think you can love without some degree of non-duality. How could you? (laughs) Uh, Unless you overcome the split between you and your partner, you and the other. All of our issues, all of our issues, uh, political, social, personal, religious-wise, for their resolution, demand some degree of non-duality to overcome unfair, artificial, dichotomies and dualisms. You've heard me say this, of course I love language and the roots of words, but diabolos, dia through, bolos, bolain means to throw. So uh, the, the diabolical is when things are thrown apart. And we live in a world where everything is thrown apart. In that sense, everything's diabolical unless some people come along who reunite it in their mind and their heart and say, those two are not separate. Those two races, those two religions, 
those two people. Gee, uh, you could take all of the sacraments, all seven of them. Marriage being the most symbolic, you know. You are not two, you are one. (laughs) Don't separate it. Uh, Penance, saying you're not separate from your sins. Learn from them. They're forgiven, but learn from them. Uh, The Eucharist itself, of course, which you rightly call communion. But go down the line. It's always overcoming splits to experience wholeness, to be whole, and therefore to see wholeness over there. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Richard. And I'm thinking now of um, knowing that we have a lot of listeners who are in their first half of life. How do you recommend that someone in that first half of life approach this tenet of non-duality and not trying to bypass into some of you know, what we, you have called like second half of life spirituality. What kind of guidance would you offer those in their first half of life? For a uh, good question. In the practical order, it's going to amount to you not being jerked around by your hormonal, emotional life, which is overly invested in your younger years. And God probably gave it to us to give us a kick in the pants and get us started and passionate about something, Mm -hmm. zealous about something. But that's why Meister Eckhart says, detachment, detachment, detachment. So start practicing already in your 20s and 30s a non-identification, Cynthia speaks of that so much, a non-identification with your own feelings, your own zeal, your own righteousness, your own self-image, your own group, and you will see the fruits of it by the middle of life. Mm -hmm. You will be a Pontifex Minimus. You'll be a little bridge builder. (laughs) I never said that before. I'm making a t-shirt. That's great. (laughs) There are four major splits from reality that we all have made, I, I think it's fair to say that, in varying degrees, to create our false self. And if you remain split in regard to even one of these, you haven't fallen into the beauty and goodness of the true self. First of all, we split from our shadow self, which we talked about earlier in the week, and pretend to be our idealized self. That split has to be overcome because you and that was the meaning of confession of sin, you know, seeing your shadow. So these aren't new psychological ideas. They had old language. Secondly, We split our mind from our body and soul and live in our minds. Now, that's what most mature religion understood and why they they encouraged some form of meditation to get away from that idolization of thinking that led to the low point in Western philosophy, I think, therefore I am. No, you are not your thinking, the mystics and saints would say. Third split. We split from death and try to live our life without any death. There's Ernest Becker again, the denial of death. Let's just live comfortably. Let's try to maintain our beauty, which you only have for a while. Enjoy it, you young people. It's it's very lovely while you have it. 
But um, you um, slowly surrender to the inevitability of death. And that whatever this embodiment is, as I presently know it, is not going to last forever. And so you've got to find the life on the other side of death now. You can't wait till you die. Once you know, then what did I ever lose by dying? It's okay. Fourth split, we split ourselves from other selves and try to live apart, superior, and separate. Now, if you achieve all of those, which a lot of people do, that's almost their job in the first half of life. Deny their shadow, deny their intimate connection with other races and religions or people, run from death. It's almost impossible to have authentic religion because you will split for you. You can't experience union with God at any depth. You can be religious in some sense, but you won't be holy. Mm-hmm. And do remember, we're, we're real lucky in the uh, English language that the word whole and holy are clearly the same word. Mm-hmm. Now, in Spanish, too, santo is healed. Sani- so- sanidad, they have the same root. Root, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. All it, yeah. And sanidad means healed. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So uh, there was this deep recognition in language. Yeah. I I like to make it that explicit, and then people know we're not talking theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're talking about very real journeys, very real surrenders and recognitions. And, and, yeah. That's so helpful because, as we've been journeying through each of these tenets and wanting to end each of them by asking, how do we practice this one? I feel like you've already, in a way, given us a way to practice this tenet because you're pointing us to these four ways that we tend to split, these four ways that we tend to split off and split apart, to pay attention to them, to look at each of those four tendencies that we have and to move with God into a healing and wholeness and a whole making process where we can be brought back together into union mm. in each of those four ways. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for understanding. Nothing satisfies me more than, you know, it's always toss and catch, pitch and catch. Mm. And uh, when someone catches it, the message is real. Mm. Until that incarnation happens, it's just hanging out there. So that's been my great gift to have people like you around who, wow, not just catch it, but appreciate it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And to know why it matters. Because a lot of people don't. They're good people, but they're. this is when Jesus talks caught up in the worries of this world, the other three kinds of soil that they don't have time to know why this matters. Often till the end of life, hospice workers tell me. (laughs) Sometimes they put it off till the last five months, five days, even five minutes to finally say, oh my God, all that mattered. (laughs) Now I'm going to surrender to union. I have no other choice except to put myself in the hands of love And according to the hospice workers I've talked to, and I mean this, 
They say most people do at the very end. Mm. <laughs> wow. Good to hear. Hope so. Yes, But they could have had a much happier life if they'd done it earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I got to complain a little bit. I mean, that's such a great invitation for us in the first half of life to begin now. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you so much for, for offering that. And shall we turn to some questions from yes, please uh, do. the voicemails? Yeah. Please do. So my question relates to principle seven, which is our non-duality being the highest level of consciousness. And what I'd like to ask, Father is can you possibly cast a vision for what you see as a corresponding creative orthopraxy for common good that relates to this alternate orthodoxy? So many of the models created by church world still maintain a vertical or an acceptable dominant posture of privilege when assisting those deemed underprivileged so I'm looking for your creative or prophetic imagination around what you see as a democratic society of people that really are more horizontal or truly living with and for each other. Thank you. You know, because non-duality, I and the father are one, I and the neighbor are one, is such a high goal. You ask for a praxis, and I think that's right on. You have to practice acting as if. And at the beginning, it'll almost feel like pretending. It won't feel like experiential knowledge yet. Like when we go to communion at the Eucharist. Well, okay, I'll receive this. It's a nice little blessing for me. But it really takes a whole lifetime to gradually sink into the level of cellular knowledge. So my advice would be, act as if you are one with God. Act as if you are one with yourself. And don't allow the splits to, to define you. Act as if you are one with your neighbor. Act as if you are one with the trees and the sky. Because most Christians think of that as paganism mm -hmm. or animism, we used to call it. Huh? So they're afraid to go there. Well, I mean, we, we created put-down words like tree-hugging. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm encouraging tree-hugging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, act as if, and you will soon know as if that it wasn't wrong to embrace this beautiful tree or anything else. I love that she brought up prophetic imagination in relationship to this final tenet because it seems like what this whole path of, of kenosis, of self-emptying, of love manifesting, incarnating is also, it, it's in tension with unknowing and unsaying That's and right. undoing That's in right. a way, the yeah. unhelpful and unhealthy and dominant systems mm. of how things are done. So there's a tension between that unknowing and unsaying and moving into emptiness so that we can actually move into the potentiality of God manifesting something new mm -hmm. in our time through us as us that we can't, you know, who is it? Is it Einstein who says that we can't solve a problem at the consciousness that created it? That's right. It? It's a great line. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it's great. So 
And did I let you finish it? Because they should hear that. Yeah, that problems can't be solved at the level of consciousness in which they were created. There you go. And then, Mm -hmm. so, so in a very real way, I think we have an opportunity as contemplative creatives (laughs) to move into the problems of our world, knowing that we're not going to be able to solve them together. These urgent crises that we're facing, we're not going to be able to solve them together at the same consciousness at which they were Mm -hmm. created. So, what a what a holy invitation for us. Invitation. As I'm hearing both of you, part of what landed for me was that acting as if in this unknowing and undoing and creative potentiality. It reminded me of the almost as a sense of cultivating the good soil and allowing things to grow that you may not otherwise have known mm, were perfect. were possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, next question. My name is Daniel Quinche of the 2020 cohort. My question is about the theme number seven, non-duality is the highest level of consciousness. In particular, my question to Richard, Bree, or Paul is for them to reflect on my sometimes all too frequent discouraging feelings of failure with my being impatient or otherwise unloving to my spouse in particular, but others too. In the context of the wonderful and saintly people we read about in the living school, do you have or have you had similar feelings? And what do you do as a practiced response? Thank you. Since he gave you two permission to answer, please take the lead. Ah. I'm laughing only because of course I know I know what you're talking about. I think I think we all do. One of the things I have loved about this season, Richard and Paul, is how much perfectionism has come up. Hmm. Yes. And it's even in this tenet, private perfection is not the goal. It's not about perfectionism. Understood as that non-human, never making mistakes, never failing those you love, never having to say yeah, I really screwed that one up and I'm sorry. So I think what your question is inviting us to do is to rethink, reconsider, and reframe non-duality to include our imperfection. It's not that we get to non-duality when we're perfect. We arrive in a non-dual stance when we can hold our imperfection with love and tenderness and still see divine union somehow mysteriously manifesting through even our mistakes. Mm. I feel like even this week, there have been moments, Paul, where you have like mirrored back love to me after I do something stupid. (laughs) This is a small example, right? But that the gaze that you have of full acceptance as a friend allows me to continue to relax my boundaries and edges Mm. that hold me in that separate idea that I'm not capable of union. I'm not capable of non-duality. God couldn't possibly incarnate as this mess. (laughs) That's a lot thank very kind to hear. Yeah, I think for me, the school of love has been my greatest spiritual teacher, particularly in my relationship with my wife Laura. And you know, when I am impatient with her or speak out in a way that is unkind or unloving, the way that we've been able to playfully acknowledge that has been so helpful to not have like this tight reign of like I messed up, you know, and I'm blaming you or as in that glass incident spoken of earlier, but just to be able to to play with the hurt feelings at times so that they don't become 
something that we can't talk about. For mm-hmm. us, it often starts mm-hmm. with beginning with a playfulness and then leads into a deeper conversation. Mm-hmm. But it kind of jolts us out of holding one another up to this sense of what does it mean to be the perfect married couple? Mm-hmm. We have to relax and allow ourselves to to fall and laugh at ourselves before sometimes we can re-engage into the seriousness of, of the school of love. Wow. You know, a, a terrible thing has been done to our generation in this phenomenon we call postmodernism, that almost what it means to be educated is to be a critical thinker, translate that an antagonistic thinker, mm. to point out the opposite. On the road, I almost feel like I'm sort of lucky I'm getting old because public discourse, especially with young people, and they don't know they're doing it, but the first hotshot will point out how this book shows that that's an overstatement, you know? And now I've regained control of the ball. Please don't be offended by this, but even one person told me who'd listened to our first set of um, podcasts said, oh, Bree and Paul are just fawning over you, <laughs> and I hope you're not. But the, what it means to have a critical mind is to be critical, you know? And so when you love something, people are a little embarrassed by mm. it. They're a little embarrassed by appreciation, gratitude. I got to show that I went to college. And the way I show I went to college is by yeah, picking, right. dismissing. It, it's, uh, for the last four years or so, it's been the first question in every question-answer session. I just, it's the hand that's waving the wildest, you know, is always, well, I'm going to one-up you and show you uh, why what you just said is not always true. And they don't realize what they're denying themselves, you know. Can't you just appreciate it a little bit before you depreciate it? This is no small thing. It's the nature of the Western mind now. And I think it's why we're so angry. Because you can't live in a dismissive, depreciating mind all day to prove how smart you are, how clever you are, by putting down anybody's thesis about anything. Anything. And they do that to one another. And now, fortunately, I've had many by the third day of a retreat or conference who would come up and quasi-apologize because they get what they're doing. But some don't. They just write you off as a patriarchal pig or whatever, or a Catholic or a white man Mm. or uh, pick your category. Uh, But once you find your way to dismiss And then you can see the ego sitting there with smugness. Mm. Gotcha. Starting with the no. Yeah, it starts with no. We speak of these gotcha moments, you know. And liberal people are notorious for this. It's just, I've regained my authority. And they particularly do it 
in relationship to spiritual truths, which are trying to take away some of that smugness. I can see why initiation rites were necessary, particularly for the male in, mm. in history, because that's the normal path of the male. But now it's the path of the female, too. I got to show I'm smarter than the teacher. And you probably are <laughs> in this case, but um, you're going to end up very dumb if you go through life just shooting down every new possibility as well. I read a book that shows that isn't always true. Okay, did I say it's always true? Usually I try not to, but I guess I sound like that sometime. Mm -hmm. You hear what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, it's monumental now. Well, and especially it's killing us. in relationships, what I, hear, what I hear you saying is that we're conditioned to, in, in relationships, to pick each other apart, mm -hmm. yeah. to, not, to yeah. not forgive, to kind of have a tendency to hold these things over each other, which results in that ongoing separateness. To not overcome the split yes, that we had just talked about. Exactly. So that's a that's a beautiful invitation for us to pay attention to how that's happening in our relationships mm. and move toward wholeness in ourselves and with each other. Mm. Then I'll get these people and these letters who will preface it by three different and now please correct me if I'm wrong. I might have misunderstood you. But you're not saying, but they'll even do that in private on the edge of the room to save you any possible embarrassment. So I don't want to dismiss the need for a critical mind. Mm -hmm. I need people to criticize me. But you can see the two ways of doing it. One, I've exposed you publicly and regained status in the, in the group. The other, eager to maintain both of our dignities by um, saying it personally. How are we going to teach this to a world that really doesn't understand it anymore? Because it's all about winning. That's the American remaining philosophy of life. I win, therefore I am. Power over. It's <laughs> wow. power over yeah. instead of power I win, therefore win. I am. Yeah. I yeah. win the conversation. I win with the more rude vocabulary. I win by speaking loud. They've proven that in studies. The senator that speaks loud is taken as the one who has truth. <laughs> oh, God, it's probably just the opposite, you know? Thank you for letting me tack this on the end, because it's huge. It's really huge. The failure of public discourse. I know, Bree, you're helping other people trying to address this in American culture. Hope we can. Yeah. How do you unlearn aggressive discourse, which is really violent discourse? Yeah. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit 
universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.